The sudden death of Pope Leo X sparked one of the most openly political papal conclaves in history. Each of the three major political powers of the 16th century made clear who they wanted to replace Leo and who they didn't want. The most competent man for the job, Leo's cousin, Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, was strongly opposed by King Francis I of France. King Henry VIII of England advocated for his own right-hand man, Cardinal Wolsey, and struck a deal with Emperor Charles V of Spain to support him. Wolsey came close to getting the required votes, but fell short because he couldn't get the support of the French delegation, who worried it would give too much power to the English. The issue was finally resolved when it was suggested to give the papacy to Adrian of Utrecht, a Dutch scholar who was liked and respected by all the kings. I'm Mike Hagley. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a review of the history and the content of the documents from the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. All right. Well, last episode we talked a little bit about the the election of uh it all kicked off with the death of leo the 10th who died suddenly and suspiciously and suspiciously in december 1521 he left the papacy deeply in debt to the point where the they really i mean they were borrowing candles for his funeral which is about as bad as it gets now the papal conclave that followed that was our topic of the last episode that, that was the kicked off the last episode and then we also talked about the papal conclave that eventually that let adrian become the next pope now adrian was completely unknown in rome yeah the the roman the roman citizens which really i i was sort of surprised going through all this how important the roman citizens were in the election of the pope that the power of the pope you know certainly didn't just come from his tradition but by the amount of support he could get from the people in rome the the money essentially yeah yeah, is it, he would tax the papal lands, and if they didn't support him, then taxes didn't come in. And that, and Leo the Tenth had spent so much money that Adrian needed the tax money to come in, so he needed the Romans and and those in the papal lands to support him. Now, Adrian was a good. I mean, he was very uh, trusted by Charles V. He was the tutor. he had been Charles Tudor. Yeah, that's right. He was Charles Tudor for many years. Uh, when Charles ra- rose to power, he Charles basically gave Adrian responsibility for Spain while Charles went off to Germany. Uh, so it was uh, before all that. Part of the way that Charles rose to power was through Adrian negotiating with Charles's father because Charles's father had to choose between Charles or Charles's brother Ferdinand and it was Adrian who sort of negotiated on behalf of Charles to, it was supposed to go to Ferdinand the the emperor or the kingship <laughs> was supposed to go to Ferdinand but Adrian was able to negotiate with his father to say no no why don't you send it to to Charles so Adrian appears to be rather politically astute, except that we will find through his pattern as a pope, he apparently wasn't that political. So it's a, an interesting tension between his time between uh, being a tutor for Charles V, and then he is this kind of political advocate for, advocate for Charles V. He's elected pope, and suddenly like every political bone that he has disappears. 
And, you know, it's funny because he was never, I don't know, reading through the history of Adrian, I don't know that he was ever really political. Maybe Charles expected him to be and had written on Adrian's biography more than Adrian really was. I think so. Because uh, Adrian, when he was in charge of Spain, when, when Charles was off in Germany, he didn't really manage it very well. He did that that negotiated negotiation with Charles's father, and that worked out well. But that was a sort of a one-on-one type thing. Really, Adrian was a scholar. So maybe there's a difference between the, the one-on-one conversation that Charles, I mean, Adrian has with Charles's father, and the political bones that are required to lead a large ins- institution and deal with several people, and to trust that they're going to do what they say they are going to do. So. Who is Adrian if he's not a very political person? Considered very pious, thoughtful, intelligent, a professor. Which is, well, that's what he remained as a pope. He didn't suddenly develop uh, the understanding of how to manage the politics of the Curia. So when when Adrian was elected, he didn't expect to become pope. He was just off in Spain doing his thing. And all of a sudden he gets news. He's this uh, compromise because Cardinal Wolsey just can't get the votes. Cardinal Wolsey can't get the votes. Uh, uh, Giulio de Medici couldn't get the votes. Uh, there were several players trying to get the votes and none of them could quite get it. Adrian was put forth as a compromise and everybody said, great, let's go with him. So when he's finally notified, the courier, Don Antonio de Studio sought to flatter Adrian into supporting de Studio's friends by telling him two lies. So... The the Stulio's friends were the French, and so he he sought to flatter Adrian into supporting the French, and so he, the he told the two lies. The first lie was that he said that uh, Adrian got the support of the king because the king agreed to support Adrian's election. This is the king of France because Adrian was a holy man. So, Destudio tells this first lie that the reason the King of France has supported him is because he's a holy man. So, this is patting the piety of Adrian on the back, encouraging, supporting him, and saying, as far as Adrian would interpret this as, remain pious and and stay focused on your holy tasks. Right, right. So, so this is... Uh, and then the second lie was that um, uh, Destudio told the Adrian that Carvajal, which was Destulio's boss, uh, Cardinal Carvajal, uh, offered the po- was offered the post of the Pope, but he rejected it in favor of Adrian. Again, Adrian, and again in favor of Adrian's superior piety. So Destudio's two lies served to support Destudio's two bosses. Yes, the King of France and Cardinal Caravaggio. And, and in this episode, our pronunciations on some things are going to be a little iffy. We're we're moving out of <laughs> German and uh, and into some other languages that just are not our best. So, no, no. So be patient. Be patient. Now these lies they work perfectly. They drove Adrian's papacy into failure because rather than having Adrian work on the politics of gathering the people together around a singular direction. He just decided to stay focused on his piety. And now Adrian had been worried that his election was purely due to his ties with the emperor. Now he gets the encouragement that it's also due to uh, the 
the French king the, and was... the Cardinal Caravajal. Now, when De Studio lied that Adrian was elected because he was such a good man, well, he's immensely relieved because he thinks he doesn't have to worry about politics. So he's and he's flattered. He's flattered because he's thinking, ah, you know, here we are. We're coming into this era. We have all these problems with the Turks coming up the uh, up the uh, up Danube. The, up the Danube. We have uh, uh, we have the Luther and all the problems with the quote unquote heretic uh, out in Germany. We have all these problems. We're broke. What we need, what he thought that the leaders of Europe had realized was that they need a good, holy man. So De Studio essentially has Adrian disrobe of any sort of armor of politics. And, and Adrian just thinks, I don't need any of that. And so he doesn't bring that, that wisdom of eyes that says, what are people's motives? What are they thinking? What are they doing? He just sets all that aside and says, I'm just going to be this, this religious... Uh, man, and that's going to be enough. Well, we'll see in this episode, a big part of the reason he failed as Pope was because, well, what did the world want? They did not want a holy man. They wanted a politician in that position. So DeStudio, um, it, it's amazing how the flattery um, really changed the focus of Adrian. Maybe he didn't have that politic focus beforehand, but he certainly didn't look for it now. Yeah, and and so, you know, when... when... So the first thing he does when, you know, he has this strong ally in yep. Charles V. Such a, the guy he had been a tutor to. Since guy, he was seven. Since, since he was seven. The guy he had, uh, his whole position in Spain was due to Charles V. What, well, what stake, mistake did he make? Right? He starts distancing himself from Charles. He wants to say, oh no, I'm, I am neutral I'm, I'm an impartial i'm an impartial bystander i will i will rise above all of this we have henry the eighth in in england we have francis the first in france we have charles the fifth in germany and spain i'm gonna rise all above all of them i'm and, gonna show no ties to emperor charles V. yeah and so and he's like i'm going to be the i'm gonna be the holy one and they're all going to just sort of get in line behind me because i'm just so that that just just that holy so how does he show this impartiality this distance away from emperor charles v the emperor sails to spain to meet with adrian to discuss plans uh set up the agenda for what the first year the first hundred days what is it going to look like adrian purposely makes himself unavailable and rather than sailing with the emperor to Rome and the two of them arriving together in Rome, Adrian never meets with the emperor in Spain and instead arrives separately in Rome. So Adrian, it's funny because before the lies, Distulio's lies to Adrian, Adrian wrote, and I don't know if I captured in my notes here, <clears throat> but Adrian wrote, to Charles and said, you know, we need to work together with the English to sort of freeze out the French because the French are getting too much power. Part of the reason for that was that the French previously, and this is the Bologna controversy or the Bologna um, uh, agreement, is a, they they had the the French had the ability the French king had the ability to choose his own cardinals. And so the French were, there was like this whole French delegation that were 
really just they're not loyal to the church they're loyal to the french king because the french king names the bishops yes and so what we have is this the situation where the 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 pope is naming all the other cardinals and all the other bishops but the french have this block this political block that can go into these elections and this is going to play out that's going to play out quite a bit after adrian's death now so adrian doesn't meet with the emperor right uh, charles v uh, there is no agreement between uh, Henry VIII and Charles V and Adrian that essentially disappears. And by the way, so it may be hard to s- definitively say that Adrian made a mistake by distancing himself from Charles because being drawn into that whole uh, politic would have had its own problems. Sure, but one thing is is that he went from having one supporter having no supporters. Yeah, and he may have even had two with Henry VIII and and Charles V lining up together in mutual interest against the French. Now he doesn't have Charles V, he doesn't have Henry VIII, and he thinks he has Francis I, but he'll find out he only has Francis I as long as Francis can throw Adrian wherever he wants. Yeah, so so what, 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 what Adrian does is he writes Charles a letter around this time, and he's lining up, okay, this is really what I want. And his number one priority is my, he writes, my intention is to labor to procure peace among the Christian princes that we may resist the Turks. That was his number one thing. The Turks are kind of coming up the Danube on the, the, on the Eastern, the, the Eastern side of the, the European empire. And, and Adrian says, this is terrible. We have to stop it. We have to work together. But he's making enemies. So if we want to measure Adrian as Pope based upon his ability to accomplish his number one goal, that is to unite the Christian princes together against the Turks, does he succeed? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. So um, at least on Adrian's own scorecard, he doesn't succeed. Now, if Adrian had remained too tight with Charles, we don't know what that would have meant for the French, but it wouldn't have been good for the French. Uh, Let's get a feeling for the situation. When Adrian sent representatives to Henry VIII to try to get the king to work with the French. So now Adrian is trying to get not the emperor of Germany and England to work together, but he's trying to get the English and the French to work together. He thinks, let's just start somewhere. Let's get these guys working together. Henry said that he had received so many personal injuries at the hand of the French that he would never have peace or even a truce, but would only settle matters with a sword. Henry's right-hand man, Cardinal Wolsey, even declared that the French were the real Turks, quote-unquote. The real enemies of Christendom. They were the real enemies of Christendom. And and so you get an idea of just the vitriol. The, the They just hated the French. And Charles agrees also. Maybe he uses better language. Uh, as the emperor, he's got a little bit more need to be on friendlier terms with the Pope and with others, but yet he's always still saying the same thing. So Adrian's piety really wasn't just a problem with the princes of the area. When, when, he, when he arrived in Rome, he openly expressed his disdain for the ancient art from before the Christian era. Uh, there's a, all sorts of beautiful art, if you ever go to Rome, beautiful art that is, but it has the pagan gods, in, in this different representations of, of pagan stories and, and so forth. And, now, so for a time, Rome had preserved that art as uh, just that understanding that it is the hand of an artisan, the hand of a craftsman, 
in its task is a, a beautiful, glorious thing to God. No matter what the object of what they might have produced is, it's a demonstration that God had given gifts to these men. Now, when Adrian opposes this ancient art, the leadership of Rome is insulted. They become convinced that this man from the Netherlands is just a barbarian. And, you know, I, I was able to find, they had like a the bar, Barbara, Barbara uh, Pope, they, there was like a term that they used, and I, I just stumbled across it, I couldn't find it again, I wanted to actually jot it down. But there's a term for the barbarian pope, and it was when, when you have a non-Roman pope, then it was considered a barbarian pope. And that really got solidified with Adrian, this idea of the barbarian pope who didn't understand the culture of Rome. So the, the kings of Europe at that time, the king of France, the king of the Holy Roman Emperor, and the king of England, they don't like Adrian. The Roman citizens don't like Adrian. Does he have any support among the Curia, uh, the Roman cardinals? Well, when the new pope was installed in Rome, it was customary for him to grant petitions to powerful people to help build those relationships. Sort of a little bit of horse trading, I guess, you know, because the pope scratch had... Scratch my back, I scratch your back. Along those lines, yeah. And, and so... It reminds me of, like, the wedding scene from The Godfather when everyone is handing... Um, him all these envelopes. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, something like, and it's along those lines. And what happened was, uh, Ascanio Colonna uh, was a nephew of one of the cardinals, and and he came and asked for a pardon for a friend who had been convicted of homicide. But Adrian refuses, saying, "We cannot pardon without hearing both sides." I mean, quite a legitimate. Thing. You know, I'm not just going to pardon this guy for a homicide, homicide because you asked for it. I need to hear both sides. Well, that but, wasn't the way things were done back then. No, no. This was supposed to be, you give this to us because that's what you do. And we give you then support. But Adrian plays kind of the holy card. And the Cardinals are heartbroken because they realize they don't have the pawn they thought they had. And so they're not going to support him either. So this, this, and it all comes out of those lies. This, 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 this piety, you know, walking into that position, you can see how that, that, that robust piety that he had, you know, didn't work with the, with the Kings. It didn't work with the Cardinals. It didn't work with the people of Rome. It, it was, it was, it, it caused problems because this era really wasn't about piety. No. This this era, I mean, it talked a lot about it, but this era was about bare knuckles politics. Well, and this is the challenge for Adrian. To lead the church is to lead a civic organization and not just a religious organization. Uh, the the Roman uh, curia, that that politic, the bureaucracy of the of the Roman church at this time is huge with its land holdings, its endowments, its financial resources, its ability to name bishops and cardinals who also have land holdings and uh, votes in elections. There is so much going on that Adrian is just ill-equipped for it. Uh, you know what, Mike? Let's take a beer break. Why don't you tell us about the experience that you and Josh had that procured this beer? So this is tonight. Uh, today's beer is uh, Night Fury. It's it's by, you know, we, we've had... Uh, witch's hat before, right? We had witch's hat before. This is a witch's hat brew, uh, but this is a this is sort of a special one. It's a it's a bourbon barrel variant of the Night Fury beer, 
And my goodness, it is a good, good beer. These bourbon barrel beers. I, I, I think this was one of the, I've had them before. But uh, they're really coming on strong lately. I'm, I'm, uh, well, strong is a good word for this one, by the way, Mike. <laughs> because this beer is 13.5% alcohol by volume. I, I know, I know. I'm, so uh, this is... Uh, we're going to have a full beer. We'll have a full uh, beer with some food on it. Uh, Imperial Stout brewed with molasses and lactose and aged in bourbon barrels with peanut butter, coconut, vanilla beans, and Mindo cocoa nibs. Um, warning, this does contain... Peanuts. Um, it is. Um, it is black. It is a black as night. This is um, like motor oil. It's 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 really well, the molasses does. is that probably one of the darkening thing and the cocoa nibs in there. Now and, the cocoa nibs are. Josh had to tell us about this one. Uh, cocoa nibs are basically cocoa beans that have been ground up, but not to that fine that you see with cocoa powder. It's it's more like uh, coarse. It's very, very coarse. Almost like if you take a hammer to them and and and, and break them up rather than grind them. Uh, this is a very, very good beer. This is. Uh, it, it says it's, it's more intense than a dragon attack. <laughs> I bet if you have a so few. <laughs> if you have to compare, if you've had a dragon attack, just know this is more intense than that. <laughs> This is uh, so now I know what a dragon attack is like, and uh, <laughs> this is more than that. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is uh, it's you know, I don't. One thing is, I don't taste the peanut butter. Do you taste the peanut butter in there? I taste, I, I, I taste, taste the coconut, taste the coconut, and the molasses, and the cocoa, of course. And the cocoa, I the peanut butter. I, I'd be interested to see what would happen if they take the peanut butter out. Is that just, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's the, there's a tang to it. Um, um, when we poured this, it didn't have much head. I don't know if you noticed that, but it was, it was, it was, it what didn't have a lot of head. Um, not real. It's very thick. It's a very thick beer. I'm pretty uh, certain if you spilled this one on your carpet, you would never get it out. I bet you. And, and when, when you, when I, when I swirl it here, it sort of stays on the side of the glass. Mm-hmm. It sort of sticks there almost, almost like like molasses or like motor yeah. oil or something. It's uh, it also looks a little bit like coffee though. It's but it, this is a a very very good beer. I really like these. It's rich in flavor. There's very lots rich of in flavor. Uh, lots of complexity on the inside my mouth and and then I think partly because of being aged in the bourbon barrel as it goes down my throat there there's a little bit of that burn. Yeah, but not in a bad way. But just like that reminder that. This is not something you, you, you would smell. on a hot summer day. No, 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 this, no. This is a this is a, a fall winter type beer. You can smell the smell of it is very rich, very deep, and you smell the bourbon in there. Hmm. Mm. Just a couple of sips, though. I I, I yeah. want to walk out of here. <laughs> we want to be able to work. So, Night Fury, uh, Witch's Hat, uh, stronger than a dragon attack. Uh, bourbon barrel aged flavored Imperial Stout. Excellent uh, stuff. Good choice, Josh. Thank you very much. So, getting back to Adrian. He has four goals. We had mentioned unity with the Christian princess against the Turks. But he also wants to reform the bureaucracy of the Roman Church. He wants to be able to free the papacy from politics and to be able to resist the Turks. Uh, so, his four goals are, are all notable. Um, he doesn't list, really, Luther and dealing with Luther under 
his goals. I was sort of surprised by that, but the the, the clue... It's a settled question for him. Maybe the, he doesn't think there's anything to goal towards. I think they're sort of treating Luther at this point like Jan Hus um, over in... Just in, a small little enclave of Europe that it'll burn out. Yeah. And so what we have is... Uh, and and there's, a, there's a, a note here. First of all, the first thing is I wanted to sort of establish that Adrian was no fan of Luther. Right. He, it's not that he was ignorant of Luther. He quite knew what Luther was. So he used to be, he was consulted by the theological faculty at Louvain uh, before they condemned Luther's writings. And Adrian answered, not even a novice in theology could make such mistakes. Uh, when Luther met with the emperor at Worms, Adrian wrote to Charles that it would be agreeable to God and necessary for his reputation as emperor to condemn Luther as a heretic. So those are two data points that, you know, Adrian didn't didn't have any warm and fuzzies toward Luther. No. And, and now, we had earlier mentioned that Adrian ran Spain on behalf of Emperor Charles V. He runs Spain as the Inquisitor General. And this is the height of the infa- infamous Spanish Inquisition. So, you Monty Python fans out there, just remember, no one expects the, the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition. Inquisition. <laughs> so, except Adrian. Except, yeah, so, so... It makes it all the more curious, though, why Luther didn't make the short list. I mean, he really, Adrian really, really did not like Luther, even even despised him. So uh, you, you found an answer, though, maybe in this letter from Aleander to Adrian. So Aleander wrote, the axe is, this is Aleander, who is, he was actually a former friend of Luther when they were young, when they were young, but he... He sort of went to the Catholic side and turned against Luther uh, and was one of the opponents of Luther for many, many years. And Aleander wrote, uh, The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Unless we choose to return to wisdom, there is no need of issuing new laws and fulminating bulls. We have the canons and institutes of the fathers, and if they are only observed, the evil may be arrested. Let the Pope and the Curia do away with their errors by which God and man are rightly offended. If the Germans see this done, there will be no further talk of Luther. So, Aleander is proposing that Adrian should stay focused on fixing the Roman Curia. And if Adrian fixes the errors inside of the Curia then the Germans will no longer be attracted to Luther. And he doesn't see the heirs at all to deal with justification by grace through faith or anything about works um, or the sacraments. Aleander's just seen corruption. Just deal with the corruption and we'll be fine. So, you know, but reforming the Curia is not easy business. No, it's it's uh, a big freighter moving in the sea, and you don't turn it around quickly. One of the things that I'm, I'm almost every pope, I'm, having been a former Catholic, almost every pope in my lifetime has talked about reforming the Curia. Even Francis, one of the big things that the the current Pope Francis. Well, and we're seeing in the news the um, the former ambassador to America from the Vatican is all speaking about the corruption inside the Curia that Francis is powerful, uh, powerless to change. So there's this, this, there's a continuing desire to reform the Curia going to today from, from 500 years ago to today. It's a, it's a common theme and, and but the, <laughs> reforming the Curia is no easy business. But part of it is probably just the assumption of Aleander is the same assumption today is that there's just our problem is just corruption. It's just the application of the truth that really, if we follow the same truth, but then 
do it right, we'll be fine. And of course, Luther is saying the problem isn't corruption, it's that the whole tree is rotten. That, and it's not just Luther who says that. I believe also the Orthodox say that. The mm-hmm. Orthodox, you know, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of voices out there trying to tell the Catholic Church that, yeah, there's, there's big problems there. Yeah. So Adrian had a two-prong approach to stopping Luther. The first is reform the bureaucracy of the church, reform the curia. The second... And follow his inquisitor instincts and come down hard on anybody who he thought was a heretic. And when, so when the Reformation of the Curia didn't work, he, he goes to his second approach. Begin to push for something like a German version of the Spanish Inquisition. So there was a papal brief sent to the Diet of Nuremberg in November of 1522 where the, the Pope demanded obedience. Uh, this was followed by an even more strongly worded letter in January of 1523 saying that the German church was polluted with heresy and that nothing was more foul, disgraceful, and obscene as Luther's teachings. So according to Adrian, Luther was even worse than the Turks. So you've got Henry VIII saying the French are worse than the Turks, and then you've got Adrian saying Luther is worse than the Turks. Apparently the Turks aren't Aren't that bad? Everybody <laughs> is worse than the Turks. <laughs> and what will and that's and this is one of the problems is that everybody has a favorite Air, you know, a favorite enemy within Christendom. You know, yeah. he, he keeps talking about you know uniting Western Christendom. But, but the answer to uniting is just to push out other people. The answer wasn't to essentially rally around truth. It was figure out how quickly can I push away my opponent. And that was, that was Henry's position. That's Adrian's position. Uh, that's certainly Francis's position. I mean, there's a, this, this, this pushing out uh, effort that's going on. So the Diet in Nuremberg, which is the assembly of the politicians in Germany, gives an answer to the Pope, and they deliver their answer to the Pope's representative, and they admit that they have a duty to be obedient to the Pope, but they said they could not treat Luther the same as the Spanish heretics had been treated, which is killing and burning and sawing and quartering and all that. Because they're certain that if they try to do that to Luther and his followers, something worse would take his place. Furthermore, they noted that that the Pope himself had commented that they were there were terrible abuses of papal power in the past. And now now that Luther had convinced the German people that they were being abused by papal excesses, so uh, uh you know, the Spanish Inquisition type of response would certainly bring revolution. And they actually you know, they they saw what we, we already talked a lot about the, the Well fifteen twenty two, fifteen twenty three, this is This is just before the, the peasants revolt. So this concern about revolution in Germany is is not them just giving voice uh just trying to push away Adrian. This is a legitimate concern in Germany. Absolutely. So they finally they agreed to tell Frederick the Wise to not to allow Luther to publish anymore, but that's not exactly what the Pope was hoping for. No, the bigger problem also then is for Adrian trying to accomplish anything and everything is he did it by himself. He alienated his friend, the Emperor. Uh, he alienated the cardinals. He alienated the political leadership of Rome. He he really just you know he took this holier than thou sort of attitude and just sort of why don't you just all follow me. And nobody maybe really, authentic though maybe but, but just ignorant of the of effect the, that it was having on people yeah even his attempt to deal with the bankruptcy of the church that Leo had almost brought about Adrian has no money to pay for anything 
He raises taxes to cover his expenses. He lives uh, very austere, like a monk, to try to keep expenses to minimum. But people brought accusation to this austere life he was living, assuming that he's not spending money on the Roman Curia so he can just hoard the money for himself. So that further undermined his, uh, his, 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 the confidence of the Roman people. That well, the Roman people just kind of, don't they just live with all this money that's thrown out by the Pope and then suddenly the Pope stops throwing out money? Yeah. I'm surprised they're so upset. Well, but he started taxing them more, you yeah. see. And so like, so what they're saying is that, you know, when, when Leo was in charge, you know, I didn't get taxed as much, but I got a lot more from the Pope. Now Adrian takes over. I'm taxed more, but I get less. This is so the the Roman people are looking at it and saying, "What are you doing with all this money? We were the tax we gave before were enough for Leo. Why isn't it enough for you?" Because they're not aware of how Leo had bankrupted the church so much. That, exactly. Yeah. Now Mandel Creighton sums it up nicely in quote uh, this document: "A history of the papacy from the Great Schism to the sack of Rome." He says he might have impressed the Romans on the power of holiness and might have substituted for the worldly policy of his predecessors the ideal of the Christian bishop, but he shut himself up in the Vatican and led the retired life of a studious monk. Secure in his good intentions, absorbed in his plans for the future, he lacked that quick sympathy with actual human needs, uh, which alone can make abstract plans intelligible. He was content to make his purposes clear without seeking how to how he could give them effective expression. He trusted logic and did not strive to awaken enthusiasm. He was more anxious to keep clear from doing evil than to do good. His attitude was negative rather than positive. That is a, I thought was a, an excellent summary of the problems he had was that he, he didn't, his piety, his holiness, he never translated that into something that people could really get excited about. So his own personal holy life led to a very introverted action. Um, relationship with people and so that rather than him becoming an inspiration for people they saw his holiness as something that broke relationships and separated him from people a good example now let's let's move to this uh example you found of adrian's ineffectiveness the fall of Rhodes. so Rhodes is an island in the mediterranean that was really perfectly located to allow the christian soldiers and sailors who were stationed there which were the knights hospital hospitaller uh, to harass the Muslims in Egypt and North Africa. It was also easily defended. It was this, this island that, you know, they, so it was a great launching point for, for attacks on, on the Muslim world. Uh, when Suleiman the Magnificent rose to become the leader of the Turks, he was committed to capturing the island of Rhodes. He wants to stop the pests. Right. The, the annoying attacks. Now, Adrian saw that the protection of Rhodes was critical for the Christian control of the Mediterranean, along with the trade in the region, so he worked hard to get reinforcements. Uh, meanwhile, Suleiman struck a treaty with uh, Venice, and that was the Italian city best position to help Rhodes. Uh, so, 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 you know, this is an example of, 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 of Adrian really being oblivious to the political reality of getting what he wants. He, his, his number one thing, like he said, is to resist the Turks. To, to use so he the, sees this nearby city and says, all right, if I get this nearby city close to Rhodes to agree to protect Rhodes, we're fine. That's well, that, 
That's all he needed to do. That's all he thinks he needs to do. Um, he but tries to plead with Charles, Francis, and Henry, along with the Venetians, to help protect Rhodes. But at this point, they've got no motivation to do it. Well, Suleiman, um, let's just take a step back. Suleiman, the, the, the Muslim, was the one who made the treaty with, with oh, Venice. Oh, that's right. That's right. So, so you have, so in his own backyard. That's right. Suleiman's the one who makes the treaty with Venice. Yeah. So the Muslims are making a treaty with Venice and in his own backyard, just a, you know, not too far away, a few hundred miles away, a few hundred kilometers away, Adrian can't seem to come to an agreement with the Venetians. And so, you know, he's undercutting the most effective way to defend roads. He's allowing the Muslims to cut a deal to undermine the most effective way to to defend Rhodes. At the same time, all he's doing is he's pleading with Charles, Henry, Francis. This is important. You've got to do something to protect Rhodes. So how does it work? Well, December 21st, 1522, the Grand Master of the Knights Hospital surrendered to Suleiman the Magnificent, creating the circumstances for the rise of the Ottoman Empire. By the time of Suleiman's death in 1566, Italian and French scholars were comparing the Ottomans with the ancient Roman Empire. Now, Rhodes could have been saved with a small additional force from any of those major powers, uh, but Adrian had no political pull to be able to get Charles, Francis, or Henry to support him. Yeah, it was. Uh, There's actually a good book uh, written by Bo Geertz, uh, who wrote The Hammer of God. Uh, That's on, a book we've mentioned before. Yeah, and he he wrote one on the fall of Rhodes called The Knights of Rhodes, uh, and that where the Hammer of God talks about the distinction between law and gospel. The the uh, the Knights of Rhodes talks about the theology of the cross. It's a. I need to add that book to my library list. So anyway, let's. So this is the the fall of Rhodes is is a huge change it like in, in in global politics it's the rise of the ottoman empire if if they had if anybody had if been able to put even a little bit of support to the soldiers at Rhodes, it would have stood the beachhead into europe yeah all right so now in early september of 1523 only a year and a half after he was installed as pope it became clear that Adrian was very sick. So, just perspective. Everything we've talked to play, that's, what, 18 months? Yeah. Wow. Adrian messes up pretty quick. <laughs> On September 14th, the Cardinals rushed to his bedside when they heard he was at his final hour. And are they incredibly sad and worried that Adrian is dying? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, they're not interested in carrying out his future plans. They're not interested in the welfare of the church. What do they want to know about? Where's the money? Where did he hide all the money? He's been living so plainly that they rush to his bedside so that they can look through every drawer, under everything, to try to find the money that must be hidden somewhere. His only answer was, he didn't have anything but a small savings. They refused to believe him. They grill him like a criminal. And he dies with this shadow of uh, money somewhere. Yeah, but there was no money. It sounds like it could be a good movie. It does. Like, it's a tragic movie. Very d- tragic. Digging somewhere in the Vatican and suddenly finding all of Adrian's money. Uh, <laughs> and, and that the Knights of Aspeter, in, in their anger, have laid up all these clues to try to find it. Sounds, it sounds yeah, like a... a Nicolas Cage movie, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Now, when Adrian dies, the people of Rome are so happy, they put up a wreath on the door of the doctor who treated Adrian as he died. And the wreath says, to the deliverer of our country. So we can 
disagree with Adrian's opinion on Luther, but we can appreciate his intentions. He he saw a need for the reform of the church to bring it back to unity. He wants the church united. I yeah. think that's a good goal to have. He he tries to free the papacy from the political intrigues of the of the Middle Ages and return to piety. So he wants the church not to be a political organization, but one that's about delivering the goods. Yeah, mm. and, and he, good he goal. And and he also sacrificed all of his, his even his close personal relationship with the emperor to try to make good on this. He he's he really did try his best, but it he was the wrong man at the wrong time. So Adrian saw the real threat to the church was spiritual. His contemporaries were deeply enmeshed in the political battles that were taking place between Charles, Francis, and Henry. So they didn't even notice his attempts. Like I said, he was the wrong man at the wrong time. Uh, they needed po- politics was the game at the day of the day, and he wasn't able to pull it off. Adrian is the last non-Italian pope to be elected until John Paul II's election to the papacy in 1978. Roughly 450 years. In our next episode, we're going to take a look at the election of the next pope, Clement VII. So I want to say thanks to our listeners, uh, and thanks to Josh. Uh, also, we want to have uh, recognition of our source material. Um, there was a history of the papacy by Mandel Creighton, um, modern Europe, volume one, 1453 to 1530 by Thomas Dyer. Uh, of course, Wikipedia is always good. Yeah. Just to get a quick lay of the land. Uh, by the way, you mentioned somebody was, you, somebody mentioned to you, they wanted to know where to find these books. You can't find them in, uh, 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 libraries very easily. Go to Google, Google books. That's so books.google.com. And, uh, and you'll find a lot of books that they have scanned in. And usually you can read uh, maybe a page or two or more. Um, and it's a good place to start. There's a, And they have a lot of books from the 1800s. And that's where a lot of this, the, that was the last era that people were really getting into. Early 1900s where they were really getting into the details of the what was happening in that era. Did you know that the CAPTCHA, where you have to write in the numbers you see and the numbers are kind of distorted looking and the letters are all kind of weird sizes or slanted, that all comes from an effort to help uh, Google with the scanning of books. Because whenever they come across a letter that uh, the opt- optical character recognition can't understand what letter that is, maybe because of the poor quality of the book or something like that, or it, it's scanned in a very weird, stretched-out way, that letter gets added to the CAPTCHAs. And as people write what number it is, it helps that book get better uh, scanned in. Oh, really? Yeah. The inventor of Duolingo added that because he realized that when uh, the CAPTCHAs are such a waste of time, that he wanted to be able to then take that time and make it valuable. Okay. Okay. That's clever. Uh, uh, that's a, just a tangent at the end of an episode. <laughs> if you want to get a hold of us, we love emails. Uh, you can, uh, a lot of people may email just Mike and I separately, but we also do have a grace on tap dot podcast at gmail.com email address uh you can also catch us on grace on tap dash podcast.com that's the website where we post all new episodes with some pictures and some other background material you can also catch us on facebook grace on tap podcast we Uh, appreciate any reviews you can give us on itunes there's an algorithm that helps people find us and that algorithm gets built on more reviews very good cheers cheers cheers